Thanks to all of you at home for joining us. We have a lot to get to tonight. But I want to start on December 14th, 2020, a day we should not particularly remember. It was supposed to be a a routine day, a boring day for state electors across the country as they officially cast their presidential votes. As we know very well, that was not the case in seven states, including the state of Georgia. Democratic Party electors met right up there in the Senate chambers. They are official, they are certified, and they voted for Joe Biden. But Georgia Republicans, they met at exactly the same time, right behind those closed doors. They are not official, not certified. They still met, they chose Donald Trump, they say, to keep his lawsuit alive. Even as Democratic Party electors were meeting in the Georgia State Senate for the first time in 28 years to select a Democratic president and vice president, one floor below at the state capitol, Georgia Republicans were convening their own meeting to select their own electors who voted for Donald Trump. The 16 fake Trump electors from Georgia meeting in the state capitol fraudulently. That scheme, in addition to catching the attention of the Department of Justice, it also caught the attention of one prosecutor in Georgia. Her name is Fonnie Willis. She is the Fulton County District Attorney in Atlanta. Ms. Willis was just one month into the job when she announced that she was opening an investigation into the multi-pronged effort to subvert Georgia's election results. The head of the Republican National Committee, Ronna Romney McDaniel, testified to the January 6th committee that in mid-December of 2020, President Trump asked for her help with the fake electors plot. And that points to not only Trump's knowledge of the scheme, but also his direct involvement in it. Another bombshell piece of evidence that also caught the attention of the DA, the infamous January 2021 phone call between Donald Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes which is one more than we have, because we won the state and flipping the state is a great testament to our country. I don't think you can overstate the importance of that call in terms of the evidence that Fonnie Willis is dealing with. She has on tape the sitting president of the United States calling the elections chief in a swing state that he lost, asking that official to find the exact number of votes, 11,780, that would flip the result in his favor. That is, to severely understate it, that is not good. Trump today, for reasons we'll get into in a moment, said that call was a perfect call, in all caps, not once, not twice, but three times. In addition to calling and pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to overturn the election, Trump also did the same with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and with the state investigator in the Georgia Secretary of State's office. Trump also basically forced the U.S. attorney in Atlanta to resign for not doing his bidding for him. Now, back when she launched the investigation in February of 2021, Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis said that the investigation was looking into violations of Georgia law pertaining to prohibiting the solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and local governmental bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office, and any involvement in violence or threats related to the elections administration. We soon learned that Ms. Willis was leaving no stone unturned in this investigation. In addition to investigating Trump, we would learn that those 16 fake Trump electors, they were officially targets of her criminal investigation. 
and Trump's unhinged lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who went down to Atlanta in December of 2020 and spread election conspiracies to Georgia lawmakers in the state legislature, including telling them they could and should appoint their own slate of Trump electors. Well, we found out that Mr. Giuliani, too, is a target of Ms. Willis's investigation. And last year, D.A. Willis ratcheted up the investigation by requesting that a special grand jury investigate the case. Now, a special grand jury, unlike a regular grand jury, has no automatic expiration date, and it can focus solely on one case. It does not directly issue indictments. Jurors study the evidence and present their conclusions, and they can make a recommendation to the district attorney about seeking charges. The panel was seated just eight months ago. Several Trump allies were ordered to testify before the panel by the courts, including even the Supreme Court, which weighed and then rejected Senator Lindsey Graham's efforts to defy a special grand jury subpoena for his testimony. That panel finished its work a mere two weeks ago, including its final product, a report for D.A. Willis laying out its investigation and a recommendation as to next steps. As far as the contents of that report being released to the public— Well, that was the subject of a court hearing today in Atlanta, where the district attorney made her position clear. We want to make sure that everyone is treated fairly. And we think for future defendants to be treated fairly, it's not appropriate at this time to have this report released. In the interest of justice and the rights of not the state but others, We are asking that the report not be released because you having seen that report, decisions are imminent. That was the back of Fonnie Willis's head. And what you can't see, but what you can hear there, what she's saying is this. She's saying the word defendants, plural, and she is saying that charging decisions are imminent. The district attorney also revealed today that the special grand jury heard from a grand total of 75 witnesses. 75! Now, while that grand jury may have finished its work and delivered its final report, Willis's office stressed today that this remains an ongoing investigation. And that release of the the report right now would be, in their words, dangerous because the DA has not weighed in yet on whether or not to file criminal charges. An attorney for a group of media organizations argued for the release of the report to be made public, saying that public faith in the judicial system demanded the report's release. Fulton County judge overseeing the case said he would not be making any rash decisions and did not rule today on whether or not to release the report. And so while we do not have eyes on the special grand jury's findings just yet, what was made ever more clear today is that this investigation is of tremendous breadth and magnitude. It is ongoing. There are potentially multiple defendants. And decisions regarding an indictment, or indictments plural, those decisions are imminent. Joining us now are Gwen Keyes Fleming, former district attorney in DeKalb County, which is, of course, right next to Fulton County in Georgia, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. It's great to see you both. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Gwen, let me start with you. Just in terms of, of the things that we learned today, setting the report itself aside and when that may or may not become public, um, the word dangerous 
Um, We got really stuck on that when we were discussing this as we came to air with the story. Why do you think the DA's office is characterizing a potential release of the report as dangerous? What does that what is what does that say to you? Well, I can only surmise that she has witnesses at this point that she's trying to protect, not just defendants whose rights she's also trying to protect, but she wants to ensure that as possible witnesses are named in the report, that they would be available and healthy for trial. Uh, and so that is is obviously any prosecutor's number one concern is ensuring uh, that the case can proceed with all of the relevant facts. And you need to have your appropriate witnesses to be able to do that. Um, Barb, when we talk about uh, the number of witnesses here, or the, sorry, the number of people that have testified, I'm not a legal expert, but 75 seemed like a lot. How did you read that when you heard that statistic? It does seem like a lot, but what I hear when I hear a number like that is that she has done a very thorough job. I think in a case like this with a lot of different tentacles, you know, there are different aspects of this case. There's the fake elector scheme. There is the uh, statements to the Georgia legislature. There is the harassment of poll workers. There's the tampering with voting machines. All of those different things have a lot of components to them. And so to do a thorough job, you need to talk to a lot of people. One of the things that's uh, challenging when you're conducting a grand jury investigation is you think you have just one more witness and you talk to that witness and they tell you about five more people you realize you need to talk to. And so, you know, the never ending layers, uh, skins of, a, of an onion. Uh, but 75 is certainly a, a big number. Um, and in a state uh, where, um, you know, the, the, Facts are, are relatively confined in contrast to the federal investigation, which involves a number of different states. 75 strikes me as uh, a, a big number, a lot of hard work, but a thorough effort to find out what happened here. And of course, it's an ongoing investigation. Now, Gwen, I know you were part of a Brookings Institution uh, paper that basically looked at the Georgia investigation and concluded there were a number of different charges that could be brought here. Can you talk a little bit about how you're seeing this case and the outlines as we stand now? Again, it's, there's a lot TBD, but what, what do you think is most perilous potentially for former President Trump, for example? Well, and again, that report was based on what we knew in the public realm. So as you started, you indicated that it was very rare that we had this conversation on tape. And as a result of that conversation, as well as a lot of the evidence that came to light through good reporting, uh, my colleagues and I thought there was a substantial likelihood of charges both under the election code for things like conspiracy to commit election fraud, uh, violation of oath or conspiracy to violate an oath of office, as well as your more traditional criminal crimes in Title 16 of the Georgia Code, things like false statements or forgery in the case of the alleged fake electors. And then obviously we're still waiting to see whether Bonnie and her team will pursue a RICO indictment, which would allow her to encompass all of these crimes or certainly the ones that relate to the predicate acts under the statute, the predicate crimes, foundational crimes under the statute, and see what type of case she can build from there. Can I just follow on that? When you talk about RICO charges, that's something she's used before to prosecute a number of Atlanta area musicians, rappers, uh, which is its own sort of Georgia thing that has been, you know, litigated in the public court of public opinion. But that is something she is comfortable using, Gwen. Um, in terms of the the ease of bringing a charge like that at the state level. Is there a meaningful difference between, you know, pursuing charges at the federal level versus the state level in a more circumscribed case like this? 
Yes. Actually, the Georgia RICO statute is much more broad and more favorable to prosecutors, some would argue. Uh, so it allows her to tell the whole story. And you're right. Fani has her own personal experience trying RICO uh, from the time that she took over as the DA, but also in her prior career as an assistant DA. She also has others on her team, like John Floyd, who uh, really wrote the treatise on RICO in Georgia, as well as some other states. And so that is one of the big questions we're all waiting to see is how she's going to use these resources and experience in this particular matter. Barb, it's meaningful that attorneys for former President Trump did not participate in today's hearing. They basically claim that the grand jury listened to dozens of high-ranking officials during the investigation, but never found it important to speak with the president. Therefore, they didn't need to be in the courtroom today. Do you think that that was a foolish legal calculation? And how, how much at risk do you think the president is in all of this? Well, I think it's probably as much a political decision as a legal decision there. Uh, he was not a witness. And I, it could very well be that a judge would not have heard from him anyway, since he doesn't have, uh, you know, a, uh, an official stake in it. And so rather than risk, uh, you know, losing some political points when it may not have made a difference anyway, they likely calculated that it wasn't worthwhile to make a decision here. But no doubt, uh, all roads point to Donald Trump in this case. Uh, you know, that phone call, for one, that we've all heard. But that's not all there is. There is, uh, you know, we've, we've heard that many of these other witnesses who testified uh, could be part of a conspiracy, could be a part of a number of other crimes. So I think that he should be very worried about whether he himself is charged in this case. Um, it could be that charges go in... Um, uh, a serial fashion, that she doesn't charge everybody at once, which would be another reason to keep this report secret. Sometimes uh, you charge a certain lower level group of defendants in hopes of flipping them to get to the higher ups. And so revealing this report would make that more difficult. But uh, no doubt at the heart of all of this, if you've you know put your uh, conspiracy together on a big chart, uh, the person at the center of that chart is Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, Trump's lawyers may not have been in the courtroom, but Trump's head was clearly in the courtroom. There were a series of rants on Truth Social. I think we have those that we can pull up that basically detail. I wish I could read them from here, but my, my eyes are getting very, very old. <laughs> Effectively, he's saying the call was perfect. There's nothing to see here. There was no admonishment. Therefore, he is without any guilt. I mean, we know now, Barb, that for all of us, unfortunately, being students of Trump's behavior, that he often reveals his big tell is saying he doesn't care about something, when in fact, that's usually a sign that he does deeply care about something. And in recent weeks, he's been uh, tweeting a lot against Georgia, uh, against, I should say, he's been tweeting a, lo a lot about Georgia election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. The Georgia case is very much on his mind. I mean, when you think about all of this on the timeline, Barb, the January 6th investigation at the DOJ seems months away, if not years away, from actually ending, to say nothing of actually bringing criminal uh, charges. The Georgia case seems very much to be on Trump's doorstep if you look at just the timeline. Is that, is that the correct way of thinking about these two things? That is the feel I get as well, Alex. You know, you never know what's happening behind closed doors. You don't know what you might not know. But I heard uh, Fannie Willis say today in court, uh, the word she used was that a decision is imminent. And so, you know, the, the, we know that the special grand jury has completed its work. And so now all that's left really is for her to assess the evidence 
uh, decide whether further investigation is necessary and make a charging decision. Um, we don't know where they are in the uh, DOJ investigation federally, but I agree with you that it, it doesn't feel like it's as close. And I think there's a good reason for that. I mean, part of it is uh, she's dealing with just the activities in one state, whereas DOJ is dealing with activities in a number of states, national scope. I also think we have a lot more visibility into her case because she is required by statute to go to the court to get subpoenas for witnesses who are out of state and to get those orders. So we know all the people who've come to testify before the grand jury in Georgia, whereas we don't have that same visibility at DOJ. Maybe we'll be surprised and DOJ will beat her with the indictment, but I don't think so. It seems like she is moving at a very good clip, that she's going to make a decision very soon. And based on what she said today and her very strong efforts to keep this quiet, it would surprise me if that ultimate decision is, oh, I've decided not to charge after all. Yeah. Uh, it seems like in light of her words and her actions, that charges are imminent. Gwen, let me ask you one more question, because we I think a lot of us have been very impressed with the, the alacrity with which the D.A. has moved the, the, the individual she's been able to subpoena for testif uh, testimony. This is not the only state where a slate of fake electors were sent to undermine the, the principles of American democracy. Uh, we know there's, I believe, seven other states, Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Do you think that this model, do you think that what uh, the DA is doing down in Fulton County could eventually be a model for other states that are looking to seek a criminal indictment for those actors that tried to send fake electors to Washington? Well, I think that depends on a couple of things. One, how the statutes are written in those states. And remember, at least three of them, uh, the facts are slightly different than what we have in Georgia, where there was actual conditional language on the documents that they sent to the archive saying, we are the electors if uh, it is found that the, the former president won the election. And so that goes to the element of intent or lack of intent in those states, whereas in Georgia, no such language was included on the documents. And again, in Georgia, we have this tape uh, of the January 2nd call. We have uh, information, at least public information, about conversations with the U.S. attorney, uh, sitting U.S. attorney at the time, and him uh, being asked to leave the office. We have uh, statements, uh, both public and, I presume, uh, in the grand jury under oath about how the, the secretary of state in Georgia felt about the pressure that was applied to him, both from the former president uh, as well as others during his call with Senator Graham. So I think Georgia is very unique, uh, but I'd leave it to the prosecutors in the other states to evaluate their own set of evidence and make their own decisions. We have talked a lot on this show and others about what's happening in the investigative level in Congress, what's happening at the DOJ, but Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia could be the... Um, the storm cloud on the horizon uh, in short order for President Trump and his allies uh, regarding the stealing of an American election. Gwen Keyes Fleming, former district attorney in DeKalb County, Georgia, and Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Thank you both for making the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Okay, we have much more ahead tonight. When we come back, classified documents found in the home of former Vice President Mike Pence. Just months after former Vice President Mike Pence denied having any documents in his home. National security lawyer Bradley Moss joins us next to discuss. And later, Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced tonight he will keep Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell off the Intelligence Committee. Congressman Swalwell joins us live to talk about all that. Stay with us.
MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. If you come to my house, you'll find Chick-fil-A bags all over the floor, but you're not going to find any classified information. Mm, No comment on South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham's Chick-fil-A bag disclosure today. But if recent history is a guide, the senator might want to double check his house for any classified information. Here was former Vice President Mike Pence in November. Let me ask you, as we sit here in your home office in Indiana, did you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not. Um, Do you see any reason for anyone to take classified documents with them leaving the White House? Well, there'd be no reason to have classified documents, particularly if they were in an unprotected area. Hmm. Today we got the news that last week a lawyer for former Vice President Pence found about a dozen documents marked as classified in Pence's Indiana home. The same home where just months earlier he gave that interview saying he did not take any classified documents with him from the White House. But as much as this is a story about former Vice President Mike Pence, it is also a story about the system our government uses to keep classified information safe and how clearly part of that system is failing. It seems like it's just far too easy to leave the White House with classified documents. And that is, yes, a potentially huge national security risk. Here was the reaction of the chair and the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee this afternoon. Were you surprised when you heard that the former vice president, Mike Pence, also had classified documents in his possession, apparently? Well, I kind of thought, holy heck. Um, And I do wonder, you know, how many other foreigners? About the Mike Pence classified documents. I'm just wondering what your reaction was when you heard that news. What the hell is going on around here is my reaction. So that's a problem. That is a part of our government that needs to be examined and fixed. And that is one part of the story. The other part of the story is political. Here's former Vice President Pence earlier this month. I think the Biden papers should be dealt with precisely the same way that President Trump's papers have been dealt with and examined with the same thoroughness and carefulness. But would you acknowledge these aren't equal episodes? I would say, Bob, they're different in degree, but not in kind. Republicans have spent weeks trying to paint the Biden document story as identical to the Trump document story. Pence even put his emphasis on these incidents not being different in kind. But the emphasis here, from what we know at this point, is that they are extremely different in degree. 
Joining us now is Bradley Moss, a national security attorney who has represented federal officials, members of the military, and defense contractors in security clearance proceedings. Mr. Moss, thank you for joining us tonight. You know, I mean, you may have classified documents. I may have some that I don't know about. I mean, that's highly, highly unlikely, but never say never, right? And the point would be, A, we got to shore up the ways in which we retain, you know, classified documents. But B, it still doesn't resolve the very thorny legal problem former President Trump seems to have, right? Like these are apples and that's a banana or an orange or whatever fruit you choose to, fruit metaphor you choose. Can you talk to me about how you see the Trump, Biden, Pence situations as both similar and different? Sure. So we have the larger problem, which I think everyone, now that we have not just Donald Trump, who we know was chaotic in his handling of records, but we have President Biden, we have former Vice President Pence, Lord knows, maybe we'll find out former President Obama has something out in his place in Chicago. Who knows what else we'll find in former President Clinton's uh, private residences. We have a problem here. There is a serious spillage issue in terms of these former constitutional officers, when they depart and staff boxes things up, things are getting slipped in, presumably inadvertently, but they're getting slipped in with all these various other records and they're never supposed to have been there. They were never supposed to be in Mar-a-Lago. They never should have been at uh, President Biden's locations and they never should have been at Vice President Pence's house in Indiana. That's the larger system-wide issue that we have a breakdown here. The more specific issue of legality is we have two different paths. We've got what Donald Trump did. Donald Trump was told he had records and he played games with the Justice Department. He obstructed. He was, you know, argumentative. He ultimately had lawyers submit declaration that had false information in it. That's why he got raided in August. On the other hand, we have, at least so far, we have what President Biden and former Vice President Pence have done, which is a far more cooperative, please take these documents and get them the heck out of my house approach, returning it the way they're supposed to. So that is the difference between the I don't want to get in any more trouble than I'm already in approach and the Donald Trump, I'm going to see how far I can push this approach. That's why Donald Trump is facing real potential criminal liability. And as far as I'm concerned, the other two were not. Yeah. And I think that one of the problems here, at least in, in terms of the narrative, is that the attorney general, Merrick Garland, assigned a special prosecutor to the Biden case, which gives the veneer of equivalence to the Biden in, uh, document retention and the Trump document retention. Does he now have to assign a special counsel to Vice President Pence? I mean, what do you think the threshold is at this point, given the asymmetry of what Biden did and what Trump did as far as classified documents? Is Pence going to be roped into all of this as well? He might, but I don't think we're there yet. And here's why. Part of the reason there was a special counsel assigned for Donald Trump was because Donald Trump finally declared his third run for the presidency. Right now, as far as I'm concerned, the way Merrick Garland should be running this, he's got the FBI reviewing the documents. You have a U.S. attorney's office, someone obviously not in Indiana, assigned to review what the FBI's got. If Mike Pence decides to announce he's going to run for president, which we all assume he will do, if he does that, then you consider whether or not to appoint a special counsel in that same vein, in that same context as you did with Donald Trump and with President Biden. But you're not there yet, and you may never have to be, depending on what is uh, determined by the FBI in its ongoing inquiry. 
I mean, everybody gets a special counsel. It's like an Oprah giveaway. You get a special counsel and you get a special counsel. What about the larger systemic problem that you outlined at the beginning, Bradley? Like the, the way in which classified documents are retained or kept track of. I mean, how do you fix that problem? It sounds like, you know, first of all, a lot of these records are available electronically. So that puts less of a premium, perhaps. I don't know. You tell me on the paper version. Is that how these things are getting lost? I mean, how do you look at this and what's your assessment of what needs to be fixed? So part of the problem is simply there's too much. There is too much classified data. It is an insurmountable problem to manage, to track, to properly secure. Spillage happens even with the most highly trained federal officials. Let's be really honest. It happens every day, probably. But the greater problem here is that the individuals that we're talking about, these former constitutional officers, they don't get any training. They are elected. They don't get to go through a security vetting. They're just granted access. So by virtue of their position, they're told, now you can see whatever you want. And they have no sense of what the proper procedures are. They have no sense and no accountability if they don't comply with them. So we have a real systemic issue, not only of how much we classify, but also how we train constitutional officers in how they're supposed to be handling this stuff and how serious they're supposed to treat potential mishandling of these records. And there, it may not be an easy solution. If I'm President Biden, this is your moment to take an offensive here. System-wide review. Figure out what the heck is going on here. Say, I've even gotten tripped up by this. I want a full review of the entire executive branch's policies on this, up to and including presidents and vice presidents, so we don't have this going forward. Put a special counsel on it. I'm just kidding. Bradley Moss, national security attorney. <laughs> Thank you for your time tonight. Great to talk with you as always. Absolutely. Have a good one. Still ahead, Congressman Eric Swalwell joins us just hours after Speaker Kevin McCarthy insists he will keep Swalwell off of the Intelligence Committee and he will instead, well, in a parallel fashion, give George Santos a seat on a different committee. Stay with us. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. Now, under the monument which has welcomed so many to our shores, the American nation returns to the finest of its traditions today. The days of unlimited immigration are past. But those who do come will come because of what they are and not because of the land from which they sprung. 
In October of 1965, at the foot of the Statue of Liberty, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed a bill that would overhaul the American immigration system. Before that bill signing, the United States followed a racial quota system set forth by the National Origins Act of 1924, signed by President Calvin Coolidge. That law used eugenics, a racist junk science, to justify imposing a cap on the number of people who could immigrate to America from certain countries. Those caps, or national origin quotas, were based on American demographics from the year 1890. In 1890, American immigrants were mostly Western and Northern European. And the Chinese Exclusion Act, suspending Chinese immigration to the U.S., that was in effect. That 1924 law, the National Origins Act, was meant to suppress immigration from entire regions of the globe. And it expressly and intentionally barred Asian immigrants from the country, including Japanese immigrants who had not been blocked by previous U.S. immigration laws. So that was the law of the land for decades, right up until the moment President Johnson signed that new law on Liberty Island. And Johnson's new law was largely effective. Look at this graph uh, issued forth from the Migration Policy Institute. Look at that purple block to see how small a share of the U.S. population, the U.S. immigrant population, Im Asian immigrants were in the 1960s. And then look at how that share expands after the 1960s, after President Johnson ended the national origins quota system. That moment in 1965 changed the face of this country, literally. But that change was not universally celebrated, particularly on the West Coast, where many Asian immigrants entered the country through, the, through Angel Island, which is in the San Francisco Bay. California already had a history of racist violence and terror, specifically targeting Chinese immigrant communities. Residents in Santa Ana and San Jose even burned nearby Chinatowns to the ground in the late 1800s and early 1900s. As more Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants began immigrating to Los Angeles in the years after the 1965 Immigration Act, specifically immigrating to Monterey Park, that racist vitriol, it continued. In the 1970s, a Chinese-American developer named Fred Shea started developing, a real estate in, developing real estate in that area, and he billed it as the Chinese Beverly Hills, or Little Taipei. When he started in the 1970s, the suburb was about 14 percent Asian. It was largely a white, middle-class suburb. By the 1990 census, Asian residents made up 57 percent of Monterey Park's population, making it the first majority Asian city in the United States of America. But that transition from a majority white suburb to a majority Asian ethnoburb, it, that transition came with racist pushback. In the 1980s, a group of residents tried to declare English the official language of the city, and locals decided to mark their cars with bumper stickers that said, quote, will the last American to leave Monterey Park please bring the flag? It didn't end there. Since the start of the pandemic, Asian Americans have faced a surge of anger and violence across the U.S. According to the L.A. Times, in California alone, reports of anti-Asian hate more than doubled from 2019 into 2020 and then more than doubled again from 2020 to 2021. So all of that is the context in which Monterey Park launched its first big Lunar New Year celebration since the start of the pandemic. That multi-day celebration was cut short when a shooter entered Star Ballroom Dance Studio on Saturday night, killing 11 people and injuring nine others, before a man heroically wrestled the gun away from the shooter at another dance studio a few miles away. 
Investigators are still searching for a motive for the gunman who killed himself on Sunday before police could arrest him. But a community that has been on edge for years is now mourning and terrified. And yesterday, a day that should have brought some answers about the Saturday evening massacre, it instead brought more sorrow and more fear. Last night, officers in Half Moon Bay, California, hundreds of miles north of Monterey Park, announced that a 66-year-old shooter killed seven Asian and Latino migrant workers at a mushroom farm and a nearby trucking facility. Officials say the suspect in the Half Moon Bay shooting was a Chinese agricultural worker who worked at one of the facilities he targeted. Now, to be clear, the suspected shooters in both Monterey Park and Half Moon Bay were of Asian origin. But that doesn't mean that the terror they inflicted is any less piercing or that the marginalization of that fear is any less real. This community is being targeted in ways both novel and centuries old. The history of the AAPI community in America is long and rich and complicated, but its members remain vulnerable even today. Every day, we learn a little bit more about what Speaker McCarthy gave away to Republican extremists in order to hold the gavel and be Speaker of the House. Last night, McCarthy announced that he would be appointing a group of far-right Republicans to the all-important House Rules Committee, which controls what legislation gets to the House floor for a vote. That group of hardline Republicans includes Congressman Chip Roy and Ralph Norman, both of whom were holdouts during the vote to elect McCarthy speaker in the first place. Congressman Roy is famous for holding up legislation on the House floor. Last month, he attempted to derail a major must-pass spending bill by introducing, well, by trying to introduce an amendment to defund the bipartisan law protecting same-sex marriage. The Rules Committee will now also include Congressman Thomas Massey, a libertarian-leaning Republican who also has a reputation for being a thorn in the side of, well, Congress. Massey managed to anger both Democratic and Republican leaders when he tried to force members back to Washington to hold a vote on a COVID relief bill early in the pandemic when everyone was trying to, you know, not be in the same room together and contract a deadly virus. And now he will sit on the Rules Committee. What could go wrong? The appointment of these personalities comes as Speaker McCarthy is following through on his threat to deny committee assignments to certain Democratic members of Congress in what looks an awful lot like retribution. McCarthy has said he would refuse Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell their seats on the House Intelligence Committee, despite the fact that both men served on the committee during the previous Congress. Yesterday, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries made clear he was not going to cave to McCarthy's threats tapping both Swalwell and Schiff for the Intelligence Committee. And just before we got on the air tonight, Speaker McCarthy officially ruled on Leader Jeffrey's selection, saying, I am hereby rejecting the appointments of Representatives Adam Schiff and Representative Eric Swalwell to serve on the Intelligence Committee. It is my assessment that the misuse of this panel during the 116th and 117th Congress severely undermined its primary national security and oversight missions, ultimately leaving our nation less safe. Joining us now is Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California, a man who may or may not have a chair when he goes to the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Congressman, what can be done here? We know that the Intelligence Committee is a select committee, so basically the Speaker of the House can reject nominees. Is there any recourse in this situation? 
yeah, uh, win the House in 2024. And Kevin McCarthy is going to regret giving me more time to make sure that happens. So effectively, it's flipped the House back to Democratic control. But as far as you and Congressman Schiff having seats on the House Intel Committee, that's not it sounds like that's not going to happen for the 118th Congress. Yeah. No, Alex, that's right. And when he in the letter says, you know, misuse in the last two Congresses, what he's referring to is that we had the crazy idea uh, that the former president should not have, you know, been tied so closely to Russia or allowed Russia to interview, interfere in the election as they did in 2016, or that the former president shouldn't have been able you know, to leverage 300 million U.S. taxpayer dollars to put dirt uh, on his opponent. Those were the two investigations that defined those two last Congresses that he's alluding to. And it's clear that this is just political vengeance because Mr. Schiff and I uh, were two people in the breach uh, in those investigations. Yeah. I mean, the, I, the irony of saying investigating Russian interference and possible collusion with Russians is somehow making the country less safe defies, um, it, it right. defies logic. But Speaker McCarthy seems to have singled you out in particular. And I want to play um, some sound. Well, I don't know. It's kind of a long. I'm going to just read what Kevin McCarthy said about you. Let's talk about Eric Swalwell, because you've not had the briefing. <laughs> it's hard to I understand had. what he is typically saying. Uh, but he says that you, he had a briefing as well as Speaker, former Speaker Pelosi had the briefing from the FBI. And the FBI never came before this Congress to tell the leadership of this Congress that Eric Swalwell had a problem with a Chinese spy until he served on the intel. So it wasn't just us who were concerned about the FBI was concerned about putting a member of Congress on the intel committee that has uh, effectively a relationship with a Chinese spy. What is your response to that? Uh, Alex, most importantly, John Boehner was briefed on this individual who tried to help my campaign in Barack Obama's first term. And John Boehner appointed me to the House Intelligence Committee. Paul Ryan, who had access as a Gang of Eight member to this information and investigation, appointed me to that committee. The FBI issued three statements saying all I did was help them and was never under any suspicion of wrongdoing. Donald Trump called me out at almost every rally, had access to more persons that you know, more access to more information than anyone who walks this earth. And if he would have been able to weaponize information against me, we know he would have never did that. And just last week, Glenn Kessler, you know, at the Washington Post fact checker, an independent, you know, fact checker, gave Kevin McCarthy four Pinocchios for this claim. So you don't even have to take it from me. Just looking at the evidence and the fact that I was reappointed and that the Washington Post has debunked this shows that it's purely political vengeance. I mean, political vengeance seems to be the flavor of the day with the 118th Republican-led yeah. Congress. What did you what do you make of Chip Roy and Ralph Norman being on the Rules Committee? And what do you make of the elevation of far-right members to key committee assignments? I mean, what's your expectation here for getting basic things passed, like, for example, <laughs> hurricane relief? Yeah. And I don't want to minimize this because, Alex, it is frustrating, you know, to lose this assignment. It's, it's not about me. The committee will go on and it's got great members. Uh, but what this is about, as you just alluded to, is Adam Schiff and I and potentially Miss Omar will come off our committees by way of Kevin McCarthy removing us. 
And George Santos, who just admitted today that he defrauded the FEC in his campaign statements, and we don't know anything about him except he's a Republican, will go on to a committee. Marjorie Taylor Greene will go on to the Homeland Security Committee and the committee investigating uh, COVID. And, and so it, it does seem like this is a corrupt bargain that's being carried out by Kevin McCarthy uh, when, as you pointed out, the voters, they wanted us to just get things done. And so we need relief uh, in California you know, for the storms that have hit us. We need gun safety legislation because we keep having mass shootings in California, it seems, uh, every couple of hours. And that's not what they're focusing on. They're focusing on you know, exacting uh, their pounds of flesh. Yeah, I, I, I want to say um, there is a I can't even we don't have time to get to the number of um, characters that are on the weaponization of the federal government committee. But it begins with um, Jim Jordan and ends with Harriet Hageman. That's the list. I will say, Congressman, on a serious I, that's note, right. I call it the committee, the committee to obstruct justice. Exactly. The committee um, to obstruct justice. That's what we, that committee as someone who you, who's for, district formerly represented Half Moon uh, Bay. We send our condolences to you and your former constituents, and we are thinking of California and the real crises that face this country, regardless of what the House chooses to do or not do in the upcoming Congressman, Congress. Congressman Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California. Appreciate that. Thanks for your time Thank today. Thank you, Alex. We'll be right back. That is the show for this evening. We'll see you again tomorrow. 